0: The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome to Brutal Nation. The podcast is dedicated to lesser known serial killers. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. And no co-host today. Squatch is out sick. So I got to kind of do this on my own. Crossing my fingers here because... yeah. I, just not, I don't feel it's funny without Squatch hair. It's just, you know, Tan, Tammy yeah, brings out the funny in me. not bizarre? Anyways, today I'm doing a really interesting one. That it was a really interesting read. Uh, Dennis goes by the name Des Dez Andrew Nilsson, also known as the Muswell Hill murderer or the Tindley killer. Let's start about talking about this, homie. So he was born on November 23rd of 1945 in Fraserburgh, Scotland. Oh, in Scotland. I love it when they're from Scotland. On the look. To uh, Olaf Mangus, and I'm going to fuck this up. Mokshim and Elizabeth Betty Duluthy Wyatt. What the fuck did my researcher put down? Oh, that's his last name. Olaf Mangus Mok- Mokshim. And Elizabeth, Duthie, D-U-T-H-I-E, and she went by Betty Wyatt. Dennis was a middle child of three kids, with an older brother, Olaf Jr., and a younger uh, and a younger sister named Sylvia. Olaf Senior was a Norwegian soldier who who was sent to Scotland as part of a free Norwegian forces of the pre whatever. Anyway. Olaf and Betty married shortly after meeting in which Olaf had rescued Betty from being uh, accosted, which I'm assuming she's probably going to be like raped or mugged or something. Who knows? At some point, Olaf changed his name to Nilsen. A doomed marriage from the start, by the way. Nilsen's father had little interest in being a father or a husband focusing more on his career as a soldier and neglecting to find a place for his family that was ever growing to live. Reportedly, he was also an alcoholic. As a result, Dennis grew up in a in a shared room with his mother and his siblings, brother and sister, right? At his grandparents' home in a small fishing village. Not long after his sister was born, his parents discovered that he was four years old Oh, What the fuck not long after his sister was born his parents divorced Jesus. I can't I, I thought it was Tammy that made me not be able to read like some hooked on phonics shit or something but apparently I'm just I'm an educated idiot and I can't read so let's try that one again after I light a cigarette because hey why not any news? After his sister was born, uh, his parents uh, got divorced and Dennis was four years old. And he uh, so anyway, Dennis's maternal grandparents were really supportive uh, of this hugely controversial decision as they were. This is a large Catholic family, right? And it's the late 40s into the early 50s uh, because they never liked him and they hadn't wanted the marriage to happen in the first place. So they're like, yeah, you guys gonna get divorced. Yeah, fuck him. He's out. So, anywho, Dennis was a quiet and yet adventurous child, highly reserved uh, in showing his emotions, though, kind of stuffing them down like most of us guys do. Which, by the way, is not healthy at all. Dennis developed a strong relationship with his grandfather, who, on all accounts, was actually just—he was cold and very dour and stoic uh, and a very poor fisherman, as in financial-wise. He fished, but, you know, they weren't making a shit ton of money. Um, who was by and large, though aside of that, he was respected by everybody who lived in the town. Music and dancing booze and working on the Sabbath, which is Sunday, was highly frowned upon within that household. So that kind of gives you an idea of kind of the strict rules going on. You know, you can't can't have music, can't dance, it's all about Satan. And we're Catholic, so When Dennis's grandfather came home from the sea, though, he'd often they'd often take really long walks together, and he'd regale him with stories about his adventures at sea. And this would be one of the most meaningful relationships in Dennis's life. Around the age of six, Dennis's grandfather died of a heart attack while out at sea. He was brought home, and he was laid in another room. No one ever explained to young Dennis that he was actually dead. His mother forced him to view the body and told him that he was sleeping, and then no one ever mentioned him again. This led to him believing that his grandfather was just sick and would uh, and would come home at some point to explain everything. Eventually, he realized his grandfather, yeah, he wasn't coming back. Okay, so check this out. From my point of view, this was a huge mistake on the part of his mother as well as his grandmother. Grief is a a very natural emotion, but so is the feeling of being betrayed. I feel that if they had simply told Dennis that his grandfather died, he would have grieved, which is natural, right? Um, But by playing it off as if he was sick and just sleeping and allowing Dennis to make the assumption that he was sick probably led to deep feelings of betrayal. Like, a, you know, like I he'd been lied to. That's essentially what happened. With that said, it changed. Uh, it changes the parent and child dynamic from the feeling of a, a place where you're you think you're hey, my my mother or my, my parents, if you got both of them, they have my best interest at heart. It changes that dynamic from from that way of thinking to really thinking, um, can I really trust them? Are they lying to me? Are they fucking with me? Well, what's happening with that? Dennis grew even more quiet and withdrawn from his family and everybody else, simultaneously withdrawing from any affection given to him and becoming increasingly more resentful of affection shown to his siblings. Now, that may have confused y'all. It means he didn't want any affection for him or his siblings at all, and he actually resented that uh, when people would do that. Uh, he invited his older brother's previous what the invived whatever anyway he was showing us of his brother's uh, perceived popularity he was closer to his sister than anyone else though occasionally talking to her or playing with her but most frequently taking off to walk alone on the river without saying a word to anybody on one such adventure, he was about 10 years old Dennis almost drowned while he was being dragged out to sea by the tide. He claimed to have a vision of his father coming to save him. In reality, it was another young boy, who pulled him out. Shortly after, his mother moved them out of her parents' house and into a place of their own in town. In the town of Stricken, uh, you know that's where they were all living. So they're out of they're out of uh, Grandma's house. They're in their own home. Uh, and that, one of those reasons was she didn't want to worry about the kids getting dragged out to sea you know because they played along the, uh, the ocean all the time sometime after betty met and married a man by the name of andrew scott the two of them would go on to have four more kids within four years god damn do you people know how that shit happens yeah they make birth control now if you don't know how that happens just close your legs Dennis initially found him to be an unfair disciplinarian, but eventually grew to respect him. Dennis formed, a, formed very few friendships when he was growing up, though, because you know, he kept, he kept himself. He didn't, want, he didn't want to kind of share what was going on with him. And I think that he, that has a lot to do with his feelings of being betrayed. <clears throat> you know, you, you have a father that, that was by and large absent, and then you have a mom who betrayed you, and not just on a small level either, betrayed you on a large level saying, well, your grandfather's just sick, and then all of a sudden nobody talks about it ever again, and Grandpa just disappears. That's a pretty fucked up thing to do. At some point, an old man by the name of Mr. Ironside uh, apparently lost his sanity. He wandered outside in the middle of the night in his PJs and fell into a river and drowned. During the search for him conducted by the town, Dennis and some other kids found the body. Dennis viewed the body with fascination, and it reminded him of seeing his grandfather. See how all of that kind of works out, starts uh, putting shit in the kid's head? During puberty, Dennis discovered that he was gay. Which created feelings of confusion and shame. Now, keep it in mind: this is during like the 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 forties and the fifties, before the we, when if if you were gay, it was really frowned upon. This was like kind of a worldwide thing. I mean, some countries will still kill you if you're gay. Um, but uh, definitely in a Catholic family, if you're gay, you're you're in for a hell of a ride. That's you know they they're gonna give you a lot of shit over that. He kept this realization uh, from his highly religious family and and his very few friends that he had, of course. You know, he's like, hey, I'm not telling nobody about this, but I'm pretty sure that I like dudes. He He came to the realization that he was attracted to boys with very similar features to his sister. Thinking his attraction stemmed from the affection for her, he went on to fondle her at least one time. Dennis did not seek out relationships with those of his own age either. While his brother was sleeping, he caressed and fondled his brother as well. Olaf Jr. now suspected he was gay and publicly taunted him. And this is another good example of what I mentioned earlier. If you if you can't trust your parents, then who do you turn to when 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 you're having feelings and you know that especially ones that you feelings that you're being told yourself are not right, and at that time there you know hey having feelings that you're gay isn't right, so he had nowhere to turn to with that. I'm not justifying what he did, boys and girls, and we'll get to that in a minute. Which this is his backstory, <clears throat> but I kind of see I kind of see the beginning catalyst of, of why so anyway life and stricken was limited in entertainment and job opportunities though he respected his mother and his stepfather's work to provide uh, for the seven kids he didn't uh, begrudge their unwillingness to better their he, he, he begrudged their unwillingness to better their lives and rise above poverty so basically they, they were pretty happy with the status quo you know, this is just what we are, and we're not going to rise above it. That's what Dennis is feeling about this point. When Dennis was 14, he joined the Army Cadet Force, believing the British Army would provide him with a route to a better future. His academic records were above average, with an aptitude for history and art and an aversion to sports. So he didn't like sports, which is good, because i got to be honest with you guys, I really, I hate sports. I fucking despise them. <laughs> Dennis completed school in 1961, taking a job at a cannery as he contemplated his next path. Three weeks later, he enlisted in the army with a uh, with a commitment of nine years and a goal of becoming a chef. So he wanted to cook. Dennis excelled in the army, thriving on his travels, opportunities, and companionships that he found all while keeping his sexual orientation a deep, dark secret, which is understandable. Keep in mind now, now we're into the 60s. mm, Gays are still kind of frowned upon. Yeah. Showering separately as to avoid getting erection around his colleagues uh, and to afford the ability to masturbate in private. Mid-1964, Dennis passed his entry catering exam and officially was posted in a as a private in West Germany. you yeah, in the Germans. His alcohol intake increased. He used it as a tool to overcome his shyness. Dennis recalls how he and another German uh, youth drank themselves into a stupor. He awoke on the floor of the young man's flat. Although nothing had occurred, it inspired fantasies of his partner being unconscious or dead dead. After drinking with a fellow soldier, soldiers, he would often pretend to be unconscious in the hopes of being taken advantage of. After two years of serving in Germany, Dennis passed his final catering exam and was deployed as a cook. It was deployed as a cook. Yeah, that's right. In 1967, he was posted as a cook on the Al... I actually pra- I practiced this and I don't, I'm not going to get it. Uh, cook at the al Mensora prison this was the most dangerous assignment yet ambushes the court uh, occurred between the prison and the barracks he was kidnapped by an, an Arab taxi driver beaten and locked in the trunk Dennis was able to defend himself with a jack handle while being dragged from the trunk He beat the attacker and locked him in the trunk instead. (laughs) Ha ha, turn about this fair play, my boy. This posting provided Dennis with his own room, which enabled him freedom to develop his fantasies. Let's talk about this for a second, shall we? As adults, from teenagers, from the time we hit puberty on, we all have sexual urges and sexual fantasies. Some are just way darker than others. And apparently, I don't think he needed that much alone time to kind of figure out after, you know, that first little section of seeing his buddy drunk and passed out, thinking, huh, I should be with people who are passed out or dead. That'd be hot, which is kind of sick, but okay. He would coat his body in talcum powder and blew his lips, position himself in the mirror where his head was out of view while watching himself masturbate. Altering between the dominant and passive roles with images inspired by the painting of the Raft of Medusa, which shows an old man holding a limp, naked body of a young man while sitting next to a dismembered corpse of another man. If you don't know the painting, look it up. It's called The Raft of Medusa. His favorite fantasy being... Being of an attractive blonde soldier whose dead body is being washed by the dirty gray, hair by the dirty gray, oh, by the dirty gray-haired old man before engaging in inter- intercourse with his corpse spread eagle. In 1969, Dennis was transferred to Cyprus, where he had his first sexual experience with a female ta-da, like, hey, maybe if I you know hook up with a chick, I won't feel gay anymore. Although the count, encounter with a pro, was with a prostitute, he bragged about it to his peers, and in the, in the truth found in the, he found the experience pretty much overrated. In 1972, after 11 years of service, Dennis left the Army. He briefly moved back with his family while he decided what was to come next. Betty, his mother, lamented his lack of female companionship. So pretty well, well, going, hey, you know, you really need to find a girlfriend, homie. Like seriously, go out and get yourself a little some. She pestered him to get married and start a family. Uh, I can I can only hear her saying to him, "I'm not getting any younger, and I want some grandkids." Dennis joined his brother and sister-in-law. Uh, and another couple watching a documentary on gay men. While everyone else viewed the issue with distaste, he spoke in favor of gay rights. Well, it's understandable because of his feelings. Olaf Jr. used this opportunity to out him to his family, though. Dennis never spoke to his brother again and maintained limited contact with the rest of his family after that. Which, I'll point out again, really Catholic family. They're kind of anti-gay at this time. And now your, your brother just outed you. Yeah, kind of a dick move. That's what that is. In April of 1973, Nielsen, Nielsen joined the Metropolitan Police and moved to London. And if you don't know where London is, Jesus Christ, crawl up, crawl up from underneath that rock. It's in England. Though his employer found his attendance was spotty, he was a hard worker who frequently put in extra hours. Dennis discovered a fascination with visiting the morgue to view autopsied bodies. Though he enjoyed the work, Dennis did miss the companionship of the, uh, that the Army had, and by default, provided. Being quiet, reserved, kind of, uh, kind of an odd man, his co-workers had really no interest, to, interest in developing uh, any kind of a relationship outside of a work friendship. Thus, after work hours, he was uh, he was left to his own devices to relieve his loneliness. Nielsen uh, frequently visited gay pubs in search of some kind of you know kind of interaction, which is understandable. We all need that connection. largely largely looking for more, uh, look, 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 largely looking more for conversation than sex but in the hopes that something would develop, you know, that would be along the line of a nice relationship. This was a self-described vain search for inner peace, and that was actually from him. David Painter, whom Dennis had met through work, claimed that Dennis had taken a picture of him while he slept. He went to the police, but though they investigated, no charges were filed. Painter was so distraught over the incident, he required hospitalization. What a weak-ass dude. Like, no, for real. Okay, you're going to get all freaked out because some dude took a picture of you while you slept. You know, the dude didn't, he didn't rape you. He didn't beat you. Nothing like that. He just took a picture of you while you slept. It's, goddamn, build a, you need hospitalization over that? Build a bridge and get over that shit. It might freak most of you out, but to me, I just, I if you have a reason why you'd be freaked out about this, send an email to us because I don't understand why. While on duty, Dennis discovered a gay couple having sex in the car, and he couldn't bring himself to arrest them, which was le- he was legally required to do because it was illegal in London, you know, to be gay apparently, or at least you know, lewd contact. This combined with his failed relationship. With an unknown individual led Dennis to believe his job and, and his lifestyle were in constant conflict, so he quit. After leaving the police, Dennis found minor work as a security guard for a brief time, but largely found himself becoming quickly poor, reassigning himself to the need to file for uh, uh, resigning himself to file for the need for assistance with the English Civil Service. What he got instead was a job offer. Dennis took the job and helped unskilled workers find employment. Dennis, again, often put in extra hours, including unpaid assignments, relishing in the opportunity and the responsibility that it provided. So, you know, that filled a little bit of the need, his need. Because, you know, you're getting adulations. You know, people are like, hey, good job and shit. He had keep this job until he was actually arrested. 1975, Dennis encountered a 20-year-old man being threatened outside a pub by the name of David Gillichin. Ah, I think I got that one. Dennis interfered and took him back to, to the room uh, that he was renting. Upon learning, Gillichin was new to London and gay, unemployed, and renting a room in a hostel, they decided, hey, I have a i I know this sounds kind of crazy we just met, but um why don't we move in together? Yeah, we can pull our resources, we can get a bigger place, you know. What could go wrong, right? Shortly before they met, uh Dennis's deadbeat biological father had died, leaving his three children a thousand pounds each which like, most likely didn't provide anything for his, you know, considering the entire life of, their, of his kids. A thousand pounds really isn't that much. <clears throat> Dennis and Gilchin found a flat at 195 Melrose Avenue. Dennis negotiated with the landlord to have exclusive rights to the garden behind the residence. Initially, things were pretty copacetic. You know, they're, they're getting along. Things are good, right? Dennis worked while uh, Gilchin decorated the largely unfurnished place. They adopted a dog, and they named him Bleep. That is a gay-ass name right there. Who the fuck names a dog Bleep, like for real? Dennis logically viewed him, uh, himself as the main breadwinner, and Gilchin maintained unemployment. The relationship rarely, if at all, was sexual. As relationship grew more and more strained, each of them brought back an increasing number of sexual partners. Gilchin states that Dennis was never physically violent, but was often verbally abusive to him. In 1977, during the heat, a heat of an argument, Dennis demanded that Gilchin moves out, which Gilchin, in turn, used to exit the relationship. He's like, adios, bitch nachos, I'm out. So, newly single, Dennis spiraled along a path of casual encounters in an attempt to find a replacement relationship. Unfortunately, none were interested in anything beyond, you know, that kind of quick fling of one and done. Culminating in uh, Nielsen, yeah, culminating in Dennis's uh, deeming himself unfit to live with Oh, I see what they did here. (laughs) Ha-ha, sorry. So anyway, Dennis is now thinking that, hey, you know, fucking I'm hard to live with and uh, and, you know, threw himself further into work, alcohol and music. Which, yeah, I can't blame him on the music thing. December 30th of 78, uh, the day it all began, was the day that it all began. Suffering from extreme depression, from spending the holidays alone, Dennis decided to that he just had to go out. He encountered Stephen Holmes, who recently attended a concert, but had failed to buy himself any uh, booze afterwards. Dennis invited him back to his flat with a promise of alcohol and some music. They drank heavily until they passed out. Upon awakening, Dennis cautiously caressed Holmes in order not not to wake him up. Gazing upon his sleeping form, Dennis decided he just did not want Holmes to leave, ever. Dennis grabbed a tie and strangled Holmes until he was certain that he was unconscious, then drowned him in a bucket of water, washed his body in the bathtub, then placed him in the bed. Nielsen caressed his body while masturbating twice. Once rigor mortars started to set in, he stored the body under the floorboards for eight months before burning the body on a bonfire built in the garden in the first of what would be three bonfires. He burned a tire each time to mask the scent of the burning bodies. In at least one instance, the neighborhood kids watched the fire burn. And there's a quote from uh, from Nielsen. I eased him into his new bed beneath the floorboards. A week later, I wondered whether his body had changed at all or had started to decompose. I disinterested him. Oh, disinterred. Sorry. (laughs) I disinterred him and pulled the dirt strained youth up onto the floor. His skin was very dirty. I stripped myself naked and carried him to the bathroom and washed his body. There was practically no discoloration on his skin while his skin was pale white. His limbs were more relaxed than than they were when I put him down there. October 11th of 1979. Dennis leward Andrew Ho from Hong Kong from a pub with the promise of sex dennis attempts to strangle him but ho managed to escape and report him to the police police investigate but ho decided not to press charges two months later dennis encountered a canadian student kenneth octon octon at a pub dennis offered to show him the sights of london octon surprisingly took him up on the offer Later, Dennis suggested a meal and some drinks at his place. After a stop at the liquor store for some rum, whiskey, and some beer, they went back to Dennis's flat. While using Dennis's headphones to listen to music, Dennis strangled Octon with the cord to the headphones. Dennis poured himself a glass of rum and sipped on it, listened to music with the headphones he had just murdered the man with. The next day, he purchased a Polaroid camera and took suggestive photos of the corpse, spread the body on the bed, and watched TV with him while he was drinking. This was the beginning of a pattern of washing his victims' bodies, shaving them, applying makeup to any noticeable blemishes, and dressing them in socks and underwear. May 17th of 1980, 16-year-old Martin Duffy had hitchhiked to London. Duffy was questioned by British Transport Police regarding his obviously unpaid fare. And now, essentially, he was stuck there. He was forced to spend the night at the station. And I'm assuming they mean like a bus station or some shit. Dennis encountered him at the station on his way home from a union conference. Duffy was hungry, tired, and almost certainly cold, thus the offer of a hot meal and a place to stay for the night was very enticing and way too enticing to pass up. Once Duffy had, offered, had fallen asleep on his bed, Nielsen strangled him with a ligature until he was unconscious, dragging his body onto the kitchen and drowning him in the sink. He placed his body in the, arm, in the armchair initially, but later returned him back to the bed where he kissed him and complimented his body before and after masturbating while straddling his body. It just gets sicker, folks. Trust me. (laughs) Dennis stored Duffy in the cabinet until he noticed the body started to bloat. Under the floorboard, so under the floorboards he went. Later, he would... uh, he, he would dissect the bodies in a bathtub, boil the skin off of the heads, and put the remaining parts in a couple of suitcases that he bought solely for that purpose. Dennis killed with an increasing frequency um, after this point right here. William Billy Sutherland, alleged male prostitute, would become the only victim identified for this period. Dennis could not recall the specifics on the individuals; he could, however, recall the acts of killing the victims themselves. In January, a young Scottish man, probably from the Loch, was lured back to the, his the, with the promise of a drinking game because yeah, he's Scottish and they drink a lot. Dennis strangled him with a tie and added him to his collection. Guess where? Under the floorboards. As his frenzy of killing increased, the ability to distinguish the details lessened. Dennis did remember killing an unknown male prostitute from earlier from the Philippines or Thailand. An Irish laborer from Belfast in February, he met at a pub. A hippie type found in a sleeping bag near a doorway and an individual whom Dennis couldn't recall any details at all about, but knew that he killed him. <coughs> In April, he encountered a skinhead who, who had a neck tattoo saying, cut here on his neck. He, had, he added to the irony by boasting about how, how tough he was and, and what have not. So anyway, intoxicated, he proved no match for Dennis. He hung his torso in the bathroom for 24 hours before sending him to his favorite hiding place. Guess where? That's right. Below the floorboards in plastic bags. And here's another little quotey-poo. End of the day, end of the drink, end of the person, floorboards back, carpet replaced, and back to work at Denmark Street. And that's another one for a problem. In May, Dennis removed his, uh, the organs from his victims and disposed of them in a wasteland that was nearby with, within his household garbage. Dennis, Dennis's final victim at Melrose Avenue was 23-year-old Malcolm Barlow, <clears throat> who he conveniently found propped up against a wall of the residence due to his epilepsy causing him to have weakened legs. So, Barlow's got epilepsy. Nielsen convinced him that he ought to go to the hospital and helped him inside to await an ambulance. Surprisingly, he didn't kill him. Then, the ambulance arrived and safely took Barlow away. The next day, Barlow came uh, back to say thank you. Dennis used this tried-and-true offer of a meal and drinks. We all know where this is headed. Sure enough, as soon as Barlow fell asleep from the consumption of alcohol, Dennis strangled him with his bare hands and stuffed him under the sink. So at least he's changing some things, right? Seeing that he was out of room under the floorboards. (laughs) Dennis had developed a habit of spraying the household twice a day to get rid of the bugs and leaving the windows open at all times. As the convenience, uh, as, as to convince his neighbors, s- and the smell was due to structural issues. Dennis's landlord felt he was troublesome. He was a troublesome tenant. No clue how correct that feeling was. Right. He offered Dennis a thousand pounds to move in if he moved out in the middle of nineteen eighty-one, the guise of wanting to remodel the place. Ho, ho, all these bodies under the floorboards. Good thing four of them are already dismembered. After dismembering Barlow, Dennis disposed of, of them using the good old bonfire method. Burn them up, cremation. Dennis moved to 23, 23 Cranley Gardens, which was an attic uh, in a rundown building. The flat was grimy, the stove was caked with grease from the previous uh, the tenants, and the oven was unusable. With a rotating cast of tenants, tenants of the landlord had no shits to give regarding the condition of the building. This location provided him with no ability to hide bodies under the floorboards or in, non-exi- in, a, in a non-existent garden. This really put a damper on his hobby of murder. For almost two whole months, he went without attacking anyone. We're proud of you, Dennis. Aren't we all so proud of him? November 23rd of 1981, Dennis attempted to strangle Paul Knobs, but managed to stop himself. Allegedly, this occurred a few more times with unknown individuals who did not come forward. It's kind of like an alcoholism thing, right? I want to have a drink, but... I'm going to stop myself. It's a murder. In March of 1982, Dennis encountered John Howlett while drinking in a pub. Yeah, go figure. You're kind of figuring out where he picks these people up from? Mostly from pubs. Dennis convinced him to come back to his place and watch a movie and drink with him. That, it, basically, it's that era's version of Netflix and chill. But this time here, Forever. After watching the movie, Hallett passed out on the bed, and Dennis stared at his sleeping form for a while before strangling him with an upholstery strap. Hallett fought back, including trying to strangle his attacker. Three times within 10 minutes, Dennis tried killing his victim, only to discover he was freaking out of breath, and he was still breathing. Some people's kids though, seriously, refusing to die, what an asshole. At this point he gave up with strangulation and filled the bathtub and he drowned Howlett. The whole experience had left Dennis shaken from the stress of someone actually fighting back and coming close to winning. He ain't damn near got his ass kicked. For a, for a week, Howlett's fingerprints decorated his neck. You know, because Hallett tried to stroke him back. He's like, not today, motherfucker. May 1982, Dennis met Carl Stodder, a 21-year-old man at, you guessed it, at a pub. Stodder was depressed about a failing relationship. Dennis invited him back to his place with a promise of no sex. After being plied with alcohol, Stotter fell asleep, on an open sleeping bag. He awoke to Dennis strangling him and loudly whispering, stay still. In his brief moment of consciousness, he thought Dennis was trying to free him from the sleeping bag. He regained consciousness a second time and realized Dennis was trying to drown him. He managed to say, please, no more. Thinking Stoddard was dead, Dennis placed his body in the chair. Bleep, remember Bleep the dog? Yeah, he plays back into this. Started to lick Starter's face. Realizing he was alive, Dennis moved him to the bed, covered him with blankets, and he used his body heat to warm, quote, save him. Dennis spent two days nursing him back to health. When questioned about the experience, Dennis told him that he was mistaken. He hadn't tried to kill him. He only tried to rescue him when he became tangled up in his sleeping bag and while he was having a nightmare. oh, see what a hero we all need a little hero. Dunking him in the bath was to shock him awake is what he told this kid when starter recovered. Dennis dropped him off at a rail station in June of nineteen eighty two Dennis encountered Graham Allen hailing attempting to hail, that is, a taxi. He invited him home for a meal and strangled Alan while he ate an omelet. After his ritual of bathing the bodies, he kept Alan in the bathtub for three days and he thought about what to do with the body. Dennis would often forget where he had stored body parts. Here, there, there. Everywhere, right? Everywhere. Once in a while, opening a cabinet, he was knocked to the ground by like a pair of legs. January 26th of 1983, Stephen Sinclair became his final victim. At Dennis's flat, Sinclair fell asleep uh, with a combination of heroin and booze. Dennis fashioned the ligature from a necktie and a rope and said to himself, "Oh, Steve, here I go again." After killing Sinclair, he noticed bandages around his wrists. Removing the bandages, he discovered gashes where ironically Sinclair had attempted to kill himself by cutting his wrists. Dennis washed the body, applied talcum powder, arranged three mirrors around the bed, and lay naked right next to him. His dead body. Dennis turned the corpse head towards him, kissed the forehead, said good night, and went to sleep. Dennis stored Sinclair and Howlett in the wardrobe and a tea cabinet, and a dra- and a drawer beneath his bathtub after dismembering him in the kitchen. The bandages were used to seal the plastic bags used to store the remains. After boiling the heads, hands, and feet to remove the flesh, Dennis attempted to flush the flesh, organs, and small bones down the toilet in an ill attempt to dispose of the remains. The body, the, uh, the building was old, though, and the pipes just simply couldn't take the task of disposing of human remains. Neighbors complained about the smell and how the pipes were starting to back up in the la- uh, to the landlord. When someone came to investigate, Dennis denied them access to his residence because at that point, Sinclair's body was in the kitchen awaiting dismemberment. So yeah, no, you can't come in. I got shit going on in here that you guys don't need to know about. February 4th of 1983, Dennis, along with other tenants, wrote a, wrote a lot of letters of complaint to the landlord as the communal toilet for the other tenants were, was backed up. Attempts to use acid to clear the drains proved fruitless. When other toilets were fra- flushed, it threatened to overflow The other everything else. Dennis com- complained, saying that this was creating an intolerable environment for all. Well, because of his own fault, right? February 8th of 1983, Michael Katran, a plumber, responded to the complaints regarding the drains. Removing the drain cover, Katran discovered a flesh-like substance and small bones. Guess where they're from. Can you guess? Yeah, that's right. That's the ones he tried to flush. So Katran called his boss, Gary Wheeler. Since it was getting dark, they agreed to investigate further in the morning. Dennis and another tenant, Jim Allock. I'm sorry, Alcock, <laughs> that's funny, stopped by the manhole to talk about the discovery, and I can't help but to laugh. This dude's name is Jim Alcock, and they stopped by his manhole. <laughs> and he's gay. That's, that just all goes so well together. In response to Katran's belief, it may be human flesh. Dennis commented, It looks like someone tried flushing down their Kentucky Fried Chicken. 7.30 the next morning, Katran and Wheeler arrived to find the drain cover in a different position, <coughs> and the blockage cleared. Finding this highly suspicious, they took a closer look. Catran found bits of flesh and small bones. They called the police. Officers arrived, investigated, and found four small bones and some scraps of flesh. They took the samples to a pathologist by the name of David Bowen, who confirmed that they were indeed human, and in, in addition, one piece of flesh showed signs of strangulation. Detective Chief Inspector Perry J, that does sound like an inspector's name, arrived with two other officers. Learning from the other tenants, the top flat belonged to Dennis. They waited for him to come home from work when asked if they could speak to him regarding the pipes, he inquired why officers would want to get involved in pipes or why you know what's up with that shit? They're not plumbers. He inquired if the other if the officers if the other officers were from the health department no, their officers were found their officers. There are officers, and they found human remains in the pipes. Dennis feigned shock and said, good grief, how awful. Yeah, because I don't know where that shit came from. When told to stop messing around and tell them uh, where the rest of the body was, Dennis calmly said the wardrobe. He was asked if there was any more body parts, and he said, quote, it's a long story. I'll tell you everything. I want to get off my chest. Not here at the police station. Meaning, not at his apartment. He wants to go to the police station. When asked if it was more than one person, he answered 15 or 16 since 1978. Dennis was interviewed 16 times over a period of days, acquainting. to 30 hours of interrogation he was adamant in not knowing why he killed he hoped they they would tell him Dennis insisted that the decision to kill was in the moment he filled approximately 50 notebooks detailing his confession he felt resigned and relieved to have been caught And here's a little quotey poop. When under pressure of work and extreme pain of social loneliness and utter misery, I'm drawn compulsively to a means of escape from reality. This is achieved by taking increased amounts of alcohol and plugging into stereo music, which mentally resolves me to a higher plane of ecstasy, joy, and tears. This is a total emotional experience. I relive experiences from my childhood to the present, taking out the bad bits. When I take alcohol, I see myself moved out of my isolated prison flat, and I bring people who are not always allowed to leave because I want them to share my experience and high feelings. In defense of his behavior, he also said, A corpse is a thing. It can't feel. It can't suffer. If you're more upset about what I did to a corpse than what I did to a living person, then your morals are upside down. While awaiting trial, Dennis believed uh, being innocent until proven guilty meant that he did not need to wear prison garb. In protest, he decided not to wear any clothes at all. Oh, Run around naked. He was confined to a cell in response. After throwing the contents of his chamber pot through the bars at officers, he was sentenced to 56 days in in solitary confinement. Dennis was initially represented by Ronald Moss, but fired, rehired, and then fired again. Deciding not to plead guilty, but on the advice of Ralph Hames, pled not guilty by diminished responsibility. The debate wasn't whether he killed, but if he was capable of premeditation. It took four hours to read to the jury his interview notes. Despite attempts to paint Dennis as a narcissist with lack of emotional development, schizoid episodes who were unable to understand the wrongness of his actions, the jury found him guilty. Dennis was originally sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 25 years. Later, the home security changed it to life in prison without the possibility of parole. While in jail, Dennis filed a grievance regarding the in a his inability to watch gay porn, and later the denial of publishing an autobiography. He was able to publish it uh, posthumously. Dennis is frequently labeled as a a necrophile and a cannibal, though he definitely qualifies as a necrophiliac. He's not a cannibal. By all accounts, no human flesh was consumed, he boiled the remains as a means of disposing uh, and not for consumption. And for his lawsuit, I have heard dumber shit. I don't know if you guys, our listeners, remember uh, when we did uh, the story, the two part about Lake and Ing. But Charles Ng actually sued because he sued the state because his Cheetos were soggy. There's been stupid fucking lawsuits after lawsuits. So that's all I have for this one right here. Well, to thank you guys for tuning in and putting up with my bullshit one more time. Remember, you can send us an email at brutalnation at twistedbluellc.com. Check out the website at www.twistedbluellc.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime on Medium, and wherever you get check out your blogs from, just put in at... Brutal Nation, we should pop right up. This show's copyrighted 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights reserved, and we will see you guys later. Bye-bye.